If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3. As we saw last week, while we have many problems, you know, I think again that we feel so tangibly this week, they're symptoms of our greatest problem that we have sinned and separated ourselves from God, that we remain under his condemnation apart from Christ. And we saw two different approaches to the question, how can we be justified before God? That is, how can we, the ones who are actually unholy, be regarded as holy? How can the sinful ones be regarded as sinful? We have this problem. And one solution to the answer is me, as the Judaizers were saying, or at least part of it is me. One approach is putting confidence in the flesh, that is, trusting in ourselves and our good works that when we die and we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, hoping that our good works outweigh our bad. And the second approach we saw is putting confidence not in ourselves, but in Christ, knowing that our good works aren't so good after all, that they actually add to our spiritual bankruptcy, that our spiritual resumes look more like rap sheets. And so we look outside of ourselves, we look to Christ, not trusting in us, but in what he has done, both in his perfect life and his substitutionary death. That in the most lopsided transaction in history, Christ assumes our debts and he gives us his righteousness. More than that, Paul realized that all the things he thought were gain were actually dung, worthless, repulsive, compared to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, his Lord. We see that in Jesus we have not just a safety net, but an all-sufficient Savior, the supremely valuable one. It follows that if knowing Jesus is the greatest value in all of life, then it ought to change everything. And that's what we see this morning, that Jesus changes everything. We pick up where we left off. Stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. My goal is to know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Not that I have already reached the goal or am already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. Knowing Jesus changes everything. We'll see two things, I hope, this morning. One, that knowing Jesus flips life upside down. Specifically, the way that we think about life, before and after death. It changes our approach to suffering and death. And knowing Jesus flips religion upside down, the way that we think about relating to and worshiping God. So that's how we'll split up our text this morning in verses 10 and 11. We'll consider how knowing Jesus flips life upside down. In verses 12 through 14, we'll consider how knowing Jesus flips religion upside down. But first, knowing Jesus as the supremely valuable one flips life upside down. It changes how we view all of life before and after death because all of life becomes about gaining him and knowing him and being more like him even as it requires the losing of all things. Verse 10, my goal is to know him. 
Now again, this makes a lot of sense of everything else disconnected from Jesus and apart from Jesus in comparison to him is like dung. And if he really is the one person, the one being in the universe worthy of all of our affection and allegiance and he's ultimately satisfying, will give us more of Jesus. It's like you've been eating garbage your whole life and for the first time you're being offered steak. <laughs> or whatever that is for you. For me, it's probably wings. Um, or my mom's pozole or chilaquiles, right? The goal is to know him. And last time we saw knowing Jesus, knowing Christ, it's more than something that's intellectual. It's more than just um, signing off on a doctrinal statement of faith. It's a personal knowing. It's something subjective, experiential, like something actually happened to Paul on the road to Damascus. And I would say, especially if you're a non-Christian here this morning, I would encourage you to find a member after church or person you came with and ask them, what happened to them? You see, Paul could cast off, he could suffer the loss of all things because he's actually experienced the surpassing value of knowing Jesus, the one who alone can save, the one who is infinitely good and strong and kind. Once you've tasted him, you can't go back to trash. But this knowledge is also transformative. You can't know Jesus and experience Jesus and not become like Jesus. We have come into union with him in the same way that his righteousness has been made available to us, his entire life has, and it comes to bear on us. So if you've, especially if maybe you've known people as they were single, and then they got married, over time they start to, you know, kind of take on one another's mannerisms or speech, the weight of their union bears upon them. Well, the oneness of our union with Christ, it comes to bear on us. We cannot know him without becoming like him. This is what Paul is getting at in verse Chapter 10, he's not listing all the different things he wants to know. He's actually explaining part of what it means to know Jesus. So it should be understood like this. My goal is to know him, verse 10. That is to know the power of his resurrection. My goal is to know him. That is to know the fellowship of his sufferings. My goal is to know him. That is to be conformed to his death. I want to experience Jesus from his sufferings to his resurrection the power of his resurrection. As Christians, our desire is not to be free from our bodies. I think sometimes there's this caricature that we just want to escape, right? Our desire is not to be free from our bodies. It's to have new bodies, to love and worship Christ and to enjoy the goodness of God in his creation in bodies that are free from sin, free from decay. What we see here is the pinnacle of knowing Jesus is the resurrection because it represents perfection on every level. It represents the fullness of Jesus' redeeming work in our lives and therefore represents the fullness of us knowing him and experiencing our union with him. So if our desire is to experience the fullness of him, we desire the power of the resurrection. We want to experience what began in re regeneration when God made us genuinely new. We want to experience glorification when God makes us totally new. When sin and the curse are done away with in our hearts and our bodies. Paul speaks about this in our own chapter in verses 20 and 21. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. In John chapter 3, verse 2, John says that it's actually when we see Jesus that we will become like him as he is. The highest expression of our knowing him is becoming like him. So the pinnacle of knowing Jesus then is the resurrection of the dead. 
Paul's not just saying he simply wants a new body. Like he's not moving from chapter one to live as Christ to die as gain. Chapter three, I want to know him. I want to gain him. I want to be found in him to now just saying, really, I just want to use him for a new body. <laughs> Does Paul want a new body? Yes. To be free from the old man that he might more fully enjoy and know and be like Jesus. To be free from decay that he might devote himself fully to the son. But I think everyone would say they want resurrection. How does knowing Jesus flip life upside down? Consider how Paul's desire for the fullness of knowing Jesus changes the way he views suffering and death. I think the number one guiding impulse for every living creature, whether you're a human or a lizard, is to live and not die. But catch again what Paul says, verse 10, my goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. You see, friends, the fullness of knowing Jesus and being like Jesus comes not on this side of death, but the other side of resurrection. And if all of life is about knowing the supremely worthy and satisfying Lord and gaining Him, well, then we don't have to fear the losing of all things. We don't even have to fear death itself because they're both a means of gaining Him. This is how Jesus flips life upside down. Life is not about the avoidance of suffering. Life is not about the all out with every fiber of your being avoiding death. Life is not about the clinging to comfort. Life is about gaining Christ. And gaining Christ fully, experiencing the fullness, the completion of his perfecting power comes not on this side of death. It comes after. There's a profound, I think incredibly simple reality that ought to dictate the way we live as Christians. And it's that you have to die to rise. And you have to suffer to die unless Jesus returns. For us, there is no resurrection apart from death. The path of knowing Christ is paved for the Christian with suffering. And it leads to the doorway of death that is eternal gain. For the Christian, the cross always comes before the crown. You cannot apply for an exception. So verse 10, my goal is to know him in the power of his resurrection. Again, I think you'll hear that preached anywhere in any church on any given Sunday. And the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. That is a verse you will not hear preached on TBN. It is against the comfortable Christianity that we so often preach in America. Paul is saying that knowing Christ means sharing and participating and having fellowship with his sufferings and being conformed to his death. There's a sense in which suffering and death are prerequisites to the resurrection and therefore fullness of knowledge of Jesus. The disciples grasped this, Acts chapter 14, verses 21 and 22, after they, that is Paul and Barnabas, had preached the gospel in that town and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith and by telling them it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. That is not to say salvation is rewarded to us because of our suffering, but it is to say that as we know Jesus, we become like him, that our life conforms to the shape of his life, which was one of humble obedience to the point of death for him, even death on a cross. We participate in sufferings. Again, not that our sufferings atone for sin. Our death won't be penal, but our sins were dealt with on the cross. But as Christians, our lives ought to be marked by a degree of Christian suffering. 
because Christ's life actually sets the pattern for the Christian life. The shape of it is cruciform. He flips life upside down. He says, similar in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, then he said to them all, that is, Jesus said this, if anyone, would, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. You can spend the entirety of your life trying to save your life, clinging to comfort, avoiding suffering, and actually lose the thing that is most important to you, your soul. On the flip side, you can give up the world, you can lose your life and actually save your soul and gain the thing that matters the most, Christ. Life is flipped upside down. We lose our lives. We lose all things to gain Christ. Again, I don't think Paul is saying he enjoys suffering. He doesn't want suffering itself, right? He's not, he doesn't sit around on the weekends paper cutting his fingers. <laughs> you know, pass me the lemon juice. What Paul wants, what he desires is to gain Jesus. He understands the knowing of Christ is a gift and a privilege, and therefore the things that help us know and gain Christ are gifts and privileges. You might recall from chapter 1, verse 29, for it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. God actually graciously gives us the gifts of faith and suffering because it conforms us to the image of Christ. I would encourage you the next time that you are with a, we have a young body, but with a saint who's more seasoned than you, I would encourage you to ask them, what are the ways that they've seen God's faithfulness in their suffering? How has suffering conformed you to the image of Christ? Those might be good questions to ask over lunch today as well. Would they have chosen the suffering? No. Would they, have ex- would they exchange it now? No. Because it meant the gaining of Christ. It is a necessary step on the way to resurrection. Christian, how do you view suffering? When you suffer for Christ, are you quick to think you must be doing something wrong? Like, oh, my coworkers don't like the way I'm sharing the gospel. I must be doing something wrong. Are you quick to think God must be doing something wrong? I'm confident that we as a church have wholesale rejected the prosperity gospel, right? That insidious teaching that if we have just enough faith, if we're obedient enough, especially in giving, that God will reward us with health and wealth and happiness. But I think as Americans that we have on some level all ingested the prosperity gospel, that we have commingled the gospel of Jesus Christ with the American dream. We believe that life is about comfort. Worse yet, that God is about my comfort. Worst of all, that Christ suffered for my comfort. Friends, God is about our good. He is, as we sang this morning, He is for us, such that He's actually willing to allow us to suffer, that we might know Jesus more fully that we might rely upon him more deeply, that we might loosen our grip on the things of this life, that we might take one step closer to resurrection, the fullness of knowing Jesus. Perhaps more than anything, our disposition in life toward comfort, suffering, and death reveal what we actually believe to be most valuable of all. Consider again what Paul said in verses 7 and 8. It was actually when he, it was in the suffering, the loss of all things, that he realized that Christ was supremely valuable. 
Friends, is Jesus worth losing your reputation at work? Is it worth gaining more of Jesus if it means losing friends? Is it worth gaining more of Jesus if it means losing money? Is it worth gaining Jesus to lose time in the morning if it means losing your business? If the answer to these questions is no, it means that that thing to you is more valuable than Jesus. Friend, what are you clinging to? Again, the Christian is not in pursuit of suffering. They're not in pursuit of death. But life itself is not about clinging to comfort. It's not about elongating our lives on earth as long as we can. That's not what's ultimate. The ultimate driving force behind all of our lives is that Christ might be honored in our bodies, whether by life or death, that we might gain him, which requires, the end of verse 10, being conformed to his death. This perhaps the most jarring part of the text. You expected to say being conformed to his life or to his image. Maybe you hope it would say that. But Paul, of course, says being conformed to his death, it's jarring because it flips life upside down. It instructs us to actually live life backwards. Life is not about, like I've said, the clinging to life, to this life. No, we don't desire death. That's an unnatural thing. It's an evil thing even. We long for the day that Jesus returns to vanquish death and the curse as far as it's found. We desire resurrection, the gaining of Jesus, the being made like Jesus. There's a play on words actually in the Greek, and it comes out in the English, which is great. In chapter 2, the Christ hymn, verses 5 through 11, which is really the heart of the book, Paul says that, speaking of Jesus Christ, though being in the form of God, he took on the form of a man, which means that he came in the likeness of man and that he humbled himself in obedience to the point of death on a cross. Paul's saying, again, Jesus, in the form of God, took on the form of a man, and Paul wants to be conformed even to his death. That in Jesus we see a yielding to the Father, a humble submission even to the point of death, death on a cross. Paul's saying he wants to be conformed to the form of God who took on the form of a slave. This, of course, would make no sense apart from verse 11, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. He's happy to do so because death for the Christian is not the end. Death is not like running your car into a brick wall. Death is like the on-ramp that leads to heaven, a precursor to eternal bliss, a necessary step in the gaining of Jesus more fully, which, of course, is grasped at his final coming when our lowly bodies are made like his glorious body. We tend to try to not think about death or talk about death as much as we can. I think for our generation, at least of young people, 2020 has kind of felt like the year of death. I think for me, it began with the death of Kobe Bryant. Um, most recently, the death of Chadwick Boseman, who played Black Panther, you probably would be familiar with. COVID, of course, nearing close to a million global deaths. I found myself, even this weekend, I, I just couldn't believe that Chadwick Boseman died. Again, he played back Black Panther. I just found myself saying I couldn't believe he died. He was so young. He was 43. And it's because we've, in some respect, think that we are immortal, that we will never die. Friends, you will die someday. We all will. It could be today. It could be 50 years from now. I don't know. It could be from COVID or cancer or a car wreck. I don't know how it'll happen, but I know that it will. And no matter how much you think you can control your life and avoid death, it's one reality which you cannot. Your death day is as certain as your birthday. 
But for the Christian, death is not the end, it's the beginning. When you breathe your last on earth, your next will be in the presence of Jesus. Come face to face with our high king and friend. And in an instant, his value will be made manifest to us. Our only regrets will be that we weren't more quick to give up to lose all things to gain him. So Jesus flips life upside down. Life is not about the pursuit of comfort or safety. Right? We don't recklessly pursue suffering. We don't recklessly pursue death. But they are necessary steps in our, on our way to knowing Jesus fully and being made like him in the resurrection. Before we turn to consider the next part of the text, I have two books I want to give away. I won't give them away right now. If you want them, just come find me afterwards. One is called Living Life Backwards by David Gibson. It's a looking at the book of Ecclesiastes. And the one's called Remember Death by Matt McCullough. And they're both about how for the Christian, death almost becomes like a prism for which we think about life. Not in a morbid kind of sense, but it ought to dictate and change the way that we think about everything. So if you want these books... I think they probably would change your life. Come and find me afterwards up here at the pulpit. So now we, we turn to consider how knowing Jesus flips religion upside down. Verse 12, not that I have already reached the goal or I'm already perfect. Paul feels the need here to give a quick disclaimer, right? You haven't seen me in a while. Uh, but just want to make sure you know I'm not perfect. I haven't reached perfection. I don't have the fullness of knowing Jesus. That comes at the resurrection. Some have some do preach that you can reach a type of perfection in this life. They probably preached on your college campus. They did it ours. <laughs> John Wesley sadly taught from this text that a type of perfection was possible for the Christian. I think what Paul is doing is making it abundantly clear that that is not possible. He gives these two disclaimers. You might have noticed this, but in verse 9, Paul is talking about justification. He says that he wants to gain Christ, to be found in him, not having a righteousness from his own, from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. That is, Paul is saying, in Christ, God does not consider our sins. He considers the righteousness of Jesus. And then in verse 10, there's a move towards sanctification. The process of becoming more like Jesus as we share in his sufferings. And then he lands with glorification, this final step in becoming like Jesus at the resurrection of the dead. And Paul gives two disclaimers in this section. You might have heard this when I read this earlier. He says, I've not reached the goal or been made perfect. And then he says, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it. Paul seems maybe concerned that his readers might be conflating these things, justification, sanctification. So lest there be any confusion, right, I'm not perfect. I'm still carrying around this body of death. Paul wants us to see that the Christian is imperfect but in progress. Verse 12, not that I've already reached the goal or am already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it. I think this is the first sense in which religion is flipped upside down. I think it flies in the face of a lot of contemporary religious language, the kind of God loves me, which is true. God loves me as I am, which is true. Therefore, God is okay to keep me as I am, not true. It's wrong to assume that because God's love toward us is unconditional, that because we've been justified by grace alone apart from works, that because we'll never reach perfection in this life, that it's not something we actually strive toward. Paul says he makes every effort we have confused grace, I think many of us have, and used it as an excuse for laziness. Dallas Willard put it well when he said, Grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. We cannot and we need not earn God's love. We cannot and we need not earn grace. We cannot even and need not earn the knowing of Christ. We can, by God's grace, work out our salvation. We can, 
make every effort through the ordinary means of grace, the putting to death our sins, the spending time in word and prayer and sacrament in the context of the body in particular. Friends, can we say with Paul that we make every effort toward the goal of knowing Jesus? Why or why not? I would encourage you to consider confessing to another brother or sister this week the ways in which you are not making every effort. And more important than that, talk about why. What is the thing that has caught your eye as more valuable than Jesus? May we help one another toward that goal. But here's where religion is really flipped upside down. Look at verse 12 again. Not that I've already reached the goal, where I'm already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. The reason the Christian strives to grab hold of Christ is not so that Christ will grab hold of us, but because we've already been taken hold of by Him. We don't love God in hopes He will love us back. He loved us first and loves us still. This is seen so clearly in Paul's calling and conversion. Acts chapter 9. Starting in verse 1, now Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Friends, Paul is not on some faith journey. He's not initiated with God. God is not looking ahead and seeing his faith or works or perseverance. Paul is breathing threats and murder against Christians. He is in complete opposition to God and his people. He is making efforts, but they are not toward God. They are against him. Verse 3, And as he traveled and was near in Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied. Jesus stops Paul, not to give him a message of condemnation, not to tell him to work harder, but to pierce him with the question of grace. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The Lord blinds him. Saul goes three days that seeing or eating or drinking, his physical state matches his spiritual one. Then the Lord sends Ananias to Paul after Ananias has been wrestling with God about it. <laughs> like, Don't you know the things he's done against your people? Ananias goes to him that he might regain his sight, that he might be filled with the Holy Spirit, verse 18. And at once something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. Well, I hope, I hope this is abundantly clear, friends, that God did not save Paul because Paul was trying to be saved. Paul was seeking not to grab hold of Christ. He was seeking to persecute him. And in divine love and mercy, Christ grabbed hold of him. God began the good work. It's not that we loved God, but that he first loved us. It's not that we called out to him, but that he called us. Our conversion is the fruit of God's relentless pursuit of us. That in eternity, past before time began, he put his love on us. And at the fullness of time, God the Son became a man to hang as a lamb on the tree for the sins of us. And that while we were, so to speak, breathing threats against him, before we believed or loved Jesus, God called us. He gave us new hearts. He opened our eyes to see the dung we were clinging to in the transcendent majesty and worth of Jesus. Non-Christian, I hope you see this in particular, that you don't have to clean yourself up to come to Christ. 
he stands ready to accept you. In his mercy, he grabs hold of us before we wanted anything to do with him. See, religion is flipped upside down. It's not about the gritting of your teeth to work for your salvation in hopes that God will respond to your efforts. The gospel is the good news of God's gracious grabbing hold of us, though we were refusing him with all of our might. Religion is flipped upside down. It's not man climbing a spiritual ladder, trying to get God's attention, trying to appease him, trying to be perfect for him. It is God himself descending the ladder, becoming a man, coming to us, living and dying on our behalf. Religion is flipped upside down. Verse 13, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it. Again, I'm not there. I've not reached the goal. I've not been made perfect. But one thing I do, Paul goes on, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead. The Christian life can be thought of as a series of movements. Um, Turning and trusting, dying and living, forgetting and reaching forward. There are some types of forgetting that are bad, like forgetting to submit an assignment, forgetting to do a project at work. I forgot where I put my keys like two weeks ago, the one key to get us into Overton Chapel. (laughs) We almost did church in the parking lot. And the Lord's kindness, we ended up finding it. Well, in the Christian life, there's type, there's a type of forgetting that is good. I think Paul has three things in mind here. We're constantly forgetting what lies behind. Paul is not sitting around thinking about the things he used to put his confidence in. His circumcision, his ethnicity, his tribal affiliation, his schooling, his former zeal. The Christian has no backup plan to Christ and doesn't need one. We easily forget the things that we've found to be done in light of the surpassing value of Jesus. Secondly, we, we forget, I think, our prior sins against God. Paul's life is not shaped by the fact that he breathed threats against Christians. It's shaped by the cross, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that for freedom Christ has set us free. That's why we don't introduce ourselves as, hi, I'm John, I'm angry, or I'm John, I'm an alcoholic, or I'm John, I'm lustful. It's, I'm John, I'm in Christ. Even on Sunday mornings, we don't confess our sins to keep remembering our faults, but so that we, so to speak, can forget them and move ahead. We can reach toward God's mercy. That we might deal with them. I think this is one we might not think about. We even forget the good things that we've done in Christ. So Paul is drawing off of racing imagery, which becomes more clear, I think, in verse 14. So like an Olympic racer... When you're running, you don't look behind you to see where you've come. Unless you're Usain Bolt, you can look around, right? You'll fall, you'll lose. Or as a Christian, we, we don't look back at the things that we've done as though they'll sustain us. We keep our eyes on the prize. I think for many of us, sadly, we would look back at college as a season that we really gave ourselves to. Evangelism, disciple-making, scripture memory. Perhaps for you as a season of suffering that you really clung to the Lord There ought to be for the Christian not a looking back but a looking forward, a healthy level of discontent as we want to gain more and more of Christ. Right, Spending time with the Lord last week was good for last week. It's not good for this week. Walking in purity a month ago was good for a month ago. We want to walk in purity today. We forget what lies behind and we reach forward to what is ahead. And then verse 14, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. The goal, again, of the Christian life is gaining Christ, knowing him and being like him. It's worthy of pursuit, of making every effort. 
Paul's drawing off of a kind of racing imagery. Friends, what is the goal of your life? If we could map your life out like a race, what would it look like you're reaching toward, making every effort toward? What is the prize if we were to map out all the things that you do and think and feel? I think as we live in the Bible Belt, it's worth saying this. You know, we often address non-Christians here, which is good. Probably being in the Bible Belt, there are more people who think themselves to be Christians when they're actually not. So I say this in love. If you, if pursuing Jesus, if knowing Jesus doesn't sound like a prize to you, if it doesn't sound like the prize, you might not be a Christian. I'm not saying that every day your affections for him are on fire or that you're constantly making every effort in every season, but God's heavenly calling, his calling us home ought to be matched by a pursuit that is worthy of the call in the prize because it changes everything. Like an Olympic runner, we have fixed ourselves upon one prize, the knowing of Christ. And there are two things I think set the pursuit of Christ apart from all other things. The first one would be the prize, which we've talked about over and over again. It's like there's a reason you know what the NBA championship is and why there are a bunch of rec leagues you've never heard about. (laughs) Okay? If there was a rec league that was giving away $30 million if you won, you would be hearing about it. Some of the best players would be playing in it. Okay, Jesus, he's not even worth comparing with the other things that we might think are prizes in life. And I think the other thing for us is that it's promised to us by God. I'm not sure if you caught that. I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. It's set apart because knowing him, being made perfect like him, is promised by God. The most powerful and faithful being in the universe has made a promise to you that he will not break that you, if you are in Christ, will gain Jesus. We expend so much of our energy and effort toward things that are really good. Hear me, I want to say things that are good. Things like reforming education, like pursuing racial equality, perhaps um, fighting that the environment might be more clean, police reform. Again, hear me, things that are really good. And I think as Christians, we pursue as a means to honor God, to display his goodness to the world, But so much of our efforts are dictated by things that have not been guaranteed to us. Things even that won't last. The best and the most beautiful and most glorious of gains, Jesus Christ, has been promised to us. It is guaranteed. If I told you that, you 100% chance would win the lottery. If I just knew somehow, I promise you, you would go out and buy a lottery ticket. Well, friends, how much more ought we to pursue the one who pursued us and has been promised to us? There is no question that if we are in Christ, we will gain him fully. It is only a matter of time. It is worth suffering the loss of all things. It is worth passing through death even to be with him. It flips life upside down. It flips religion upside down. I pray that NBC would be known by men and women who run until we collapse and find ourselves in the arms of our King, Jesus. There is no higher calling, no higher pursuit, no greater prize. May we run toward that end. Jesus changes everything. Let's pray.